your copy of God's Word, please turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, continuing our series together through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than, this morning, Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. For he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness. Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in it. Father, help us to see Jesus in your word today. Father, help us to understand the greatness of Christ above all things. Father, help us to throw down the idols in our lives. Father, even the idols that we make of those people around us who are good and right and beneficial. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue walking through Hebrews together and we see the idea of Jesus being better than, the writer to the Hebrews moves to this concept of Moses here. And before he does that, he points out, as he does frequently throughout this this writing, that we need, need to consider the worth of Jesus. We need to look at how valuable and how great Jesus is. So in verses 1 and 2, he begins speaking about this. And so he talks to the people that he's writing to, the people that he is uh, addressing, and he calls them holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling there in verse 1. We are, collectively as believers, a holy family because of the heavenly calling that we have received. The beautiful thing about the church is that it is made up of the just the most massively diverse, would have never gotten together for any reason otherwise, group of people that you'll ever see. That's, that's what happens in the church. There are people, likely, that you know and have at least a moderately decent relationship with, that if it weren't for Jesus you probably never would have had any relationship with that person at all. Uh, Fun story. I've told it before. I'll tell it again. Uh, It's been several, several, several years in the past now. But my wife and I invited a group of people to our house for lunch a long, long time ago. And those of you who know my wife well, 
know that she's just real level. You know, she's just real kind of sort of lived in a little bit of a bubble. How you live in a bubble growing up in Memphis, I'm not real sure. But she managed to pull it off. I don't know. Slightly sheltered life. And so we invited some folks to our house. And they're all believers and, and people that we'd met through, you know, church and Christian connections. And one of them was an expert trainer and violent hand-to-hand combat. One of them was an extreme sports world champion. And the other couple of them had done some other extreme type stuff like that. So everybody at our house was involved in some version of extreme hand-to-hand combat or extreme sports. That's, and we're like a dozen people at our house. And they were telling these wild stories about crazy things that they had done and near-death experiences that they'd had. And it was just a wonderful, fun time of conversation, getting to know people. It was great. And then they all left. And as they left, my wife turned to me, no guile in her voice, just, just straight, regular. She looked at me and she said, Philip, you know, if it weren't for Jesus, we never would have met or hung out with any of those people. Like, we just wouldn't have. Not that there was anything wrong. There was perfectly lovely people. But our worlds probably never would have collided with each other if it weren't for our common unity in Jesus. That is the incredible thing about the church. Is that we become, no matter what your background is, no matter what your interests are, no matter what your heart language is, no matter what your cultural background is, what your race is, what your formal political associations are, or your current ones, none of these things really matter. They're all completely inconsequential. We become holy brethren, a holy family. Why? Because we're partakers in a common heavenly calling. It's an incredible thing. And so he's addressing this crowd and he says, listen, you are holy brethren. You have participated in a heavenly calling. Why have we been able to do this? Why have we become this family of faith? Why is it that all of the things that would normally make us so different and drive us so far apart, now those barricades fall down and we're driven closer together? Why is that the case? Because of the worth of Jesus. That's why. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can tear down the barricades that separate humans from each other. Only Jesus can do that. And so who is Jesus? It says here that he was an apostle. That'll create a a great deal of fun the next time you want to sit around and talk about what an apostle is and how many there are in the New Testament. I'll never anybody reference this passage from Hebrews 3 when they want to talk about that. So... Jesus is the apostle. What does the word apostle mean in its rawest definition? The word apostle in its rawest definition means a special messenger, one who has been sent on a mission. No one fills that better than Jesus does. It says in John chapter 1 that he was the word made flesh, the very message of God itself in human form. You don't get more special messenger than that. And he was most certainly sent on a special mission. The mission of taking on flesh and dying for the sins of his people. But it also says that he is a high priest of our confession. So who is the high priest? The high priest was the one in the Old Testament 
context who was allowed into the Holy of Holies, into God's very presence himself, once a year on the Day of Atonement, making the atoning sacrifice for the people. The one who went to the Ark of the Covenant, the one who went to the very mercy seat itself and made the sacrifice that God himself would set on fire, at least the first time that we see of it, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And so Jesus is now called our high priest, but not just any kind of a high priest, the high priest of our confession. This repentance and belief, this acceptance of the gospel, this participation in that heavenly calling that has caused us to become those family members together. This only works because the high priest, the one making sacrifice on our behalf, is the high priest of that confession. He is the high priest of the gospel. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus, through all of this, was faithful to the one who appointed him to this calling. We see that in the first part of verse 2. It says, he, Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him. And the writer to the Hebrews then makes a connection to the Old Testament, saying, as Moses also was in all of his house. He's going to start comparing Jesus to Moses here. And he immediately points out that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, for us, not that big of a deal. You know, we look around the room. There's not a great deal of Jewishness on display in the room today. It's a great deal of descendancy from, you know, former Norse God pagan worshipers in our past. Very clear from the general complexion of the room. That Moses is only meaningfully connected to most of our past because of the Christian reality of most of our families who've gone before us and our connection with the church or our current conversion and our personal connection with the church now. Moses was a really cool guy to sing fun songs about in our children's Sunday school classes. But on the whole, there's kind of a disconnect. There's not a lot of people in the modern Christian Western American church that place Moses way up on a pedestal. But remember, this was being written to and spoken to first century Jewish and or Judaizing Gentile believers. And in the first century, Moses would have been a very big deal to the people hearing this for the first time. Very big deal. And so the writer points out immediately that Jesus is better than Moses. Verse three, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So let's take a moment. Let's pause for just a second. Who was Moses? Seems like a fairly silly question to ask a group of believers on a Sunday morning during a worship service who, who Moses was. But let's talk through who Moses was. First and foremost, the scripture makes it very clear that Moses was a prophet. In fact, throughout the teaching of the scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, he is considered the prophet. If someone were to ever say, and just as the prophet said, they're actually talking about Moses. They're not talking about Isaiah. They're not talking about Ezekiel. They're not talking about Jeremiah. They're not talking about Daniel. Whenever it makes a reference in the scripture after the death of Moses to the prophet, they're talking about Moses. That's who they're talking about. He was the prophet. Say, so, well, I thought he wrote the law. Indeed, he did. 
But he also, at the end of the law, the retelling of the law, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, made some incredible prophetic announcements. I encourage you to go back and read them. In the latter chapters of Deuteronomy, he makes some incredible prophetic announcements. One of which was talking about when they got ready to cross over into the promised land and they received the land of promise that God had said he would give them. And there were some commandments about what they were supposed to do, especially as it related to the the foreign pagan people in those lands when they got there. And then he says to them, but when, not if, when you turn away from this covenant and go after the gods of these people, this is what's going to happen. And for millennia, that warning, promise, fulfillment kept happening over and in fact, the entire story of the Old Testament can pretty much be stripped down to Moses' prophecy coming true over and over and over again. When you abandon this covenant and you turn to these other gods, then this is what's going to happen to you. Just read every about every few pages. You can just do the random flip turn deal and point at a page. And very likely you're going to land on some aspect of the story of that happening. They're about to go into rebellion. They're in rebellion under judgment. They finally repent it. They're coming out of rebellion. You don't have a lot of pages in the Old Testament of and then they lived really long, happy covenant fulfilling lives. You just don't have a lot of that in the Old Testament. But what you do have is Moses making a declaration before any of that went down. When you abandon this covenant, when you turn away from God and you chase after idols and you pursue false gods, then these things from God will come on you on almost every page. That's why he's called the prophet. Because almost the entire story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a fulfillment of that prophecy by Moses. So he's a prophet. Not only was he the prophet, but he was also a lawgiver. Moses went up onto the top of the mountain and met with God and heard his voice and wrote his words. And came down with a glow about him having encountered the Most High God to where they had to have him wear a veil because it was too bright to look at the face of Moses. He'd spent so much time in the presence of the glory of God. And then he gave to the people the law of God. This is what God expects of you if you are going to be called his people. It's incredible. Moses, of course, as we know, saw God. He made the request to see God's face. God said, you can't see my face. I'll pass by you. You can look at my back. And he was able to see a portion of God's divine glory and it not overwhelm him or destroy him. It's remarkable. He was Israel's great deliverer. When you think Moses... Pop quiz. When you think Moses, what phrase is the first phrase that comes to mind? Go. Let my people go. Let my people go. There it is. Let my people go. And you hear it in that cool acting voice from the cartoon, you know. Somehow Moses always ends up British. I don't know. Anyway. He wasn't British, by the way. But it just sounds better on TV. 
Let my people go. He was the great deliverer. The story of the Exodus. The three largest monotheistic religions that exist on earth. All have that story as a central aspect of their scripture. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity encompass close to three billion practitioners. Almost, not quite, but close to half the planet. And thousands of years later, half of the planet still knows that story. Oh, when Moses went into Egypt, and all the plagues came. He told the great Pharaoh to let my people go. There's not very many stories that you could go, yeah, about half the planet, you know, three, three and a half billion people, they know that story. There's not very many things that you can say that are true to that effect. But <laughs> one out of about every two to 2.8 people that you could encounter anywhere on the planet, you could ask them about Moses and they'll be able to say, oh yeah, you're the guy, the Egypt guy. That's pretty incredible. He was held in a high place of esteem and regard among the Jews and the Judaizers of the first centuries, of the first century. Pharisees and Sadducees alike. The Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament. The law, the writings, and the prophets. They believed in the future resurrection. The Sadducees could be considered some of the more liberal Jewish leaders of the first century. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They only believed in the writings of Moses. They didn't believe in the future resurrection. And they didn't think the rest of the writings had any real meaningful revelatory appeal from God. They didn't think that they were part of the scriptures. Yet, as diverse as those two Jewish groups were in leading the people in spiritual things, both of those groups said, Moses is the man. Both of them. Both of them. Moses had a profound, meaningful impact on the ways and thinking of Jews and Christians and then later Muslims, even still to this day. Profound impact. And it was profoundly felt in the first century when this would have been written. But according to our text today, as profound of an influence as Moses had and still has, according to our text today, Moses is merely a servant in a house he did not build. Very few of us would talk about Moses like that. Like if I were to just sit down with you and say, hey, I want you to start talking to me about Moses. Tell me some stuff about Moses. We would say a lot of the stuff that's already been said this morning. He was a prophet. He was a lawgiver. He was the deliverer. You know, we would tell some of the stories about him. We would talk about the building of the tabernacle. We would, might even talk about his faithful obedience, which our text here does talk about, his faithful obedience. We might talk about how there's this re re repetitive phrase at the end of the Exodus where, where Moses is moving the people through the building of the tabernacle. And it says, and Moses did all, as, all that the Lord commanded. Moses did all that the Lord commanded. Moses did all that the Lord commanded. Over and over and over and over again it says that. We might talk about his faithful obedience. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would not start out talking about Moses saying, yeah, he was just a servant in a house he didn't build. That's not how we would talk about Moses. That's how the writer of the Hebrews talks about Moses. 
Oh, Moses? Oh, yeah. He was just a servant in the house he didn't build. That's who Moses was. Moses was the help. Say, so, Philip, that's harsh. No, that's real. Compared to Jesus, he was a hired servant. Compared to Jesus, he had a job to do. He had a nine to five. He had something that he was supposed to be about. And after he was done, he needed to move out of the way. Because it wasn't his house. And it really wasn't his story. And it really wasn't his message. He was just a delivery boy. Moses, the delivery boy. Not how most of us are going to talk about him. That's how the writer of the Hebrews talks about Moses compared to Jesus. Oh yeah, Moses was just a servant in a house he didn't build. But Jesus was the builder of the house. He was the master of the house. He was the ruler of the house. He not only built the house, but he ran the house. And Moses was just setting things up for Jesus. That's incredible. So if that's the case, then we need to ask, well, who is Jesus? Because this is where the writer of the Hebrews goes in this text. Who is Jesus? According to this text, he has more glory than Moses does. Jesus is not the servant. Jesus is the architect and the owner. He is the ruler. He's the sovereign king. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He is the firm foundation and upon that which all the rest of the house is built. Jesus is the sovereign king. And this house is his throne. And Moses is only serving him. As amazing as Moses' life was, it was a mere blip on the screen of the glorious story of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come anywhere close. It doesn't come anywhere close. And the beautiful thing about what the writer to the Hebrews says here, talking about the glory of Jesus. Listen, listen to this. Listen to this. And I want you to catch this. And the writer of the Hebrews is not excluding Moses from the family of faith when he says this. He's not doing this at all. But he's using very aggressive language. If this really was a first century sermon to the early church, like most scholars think that it was... I want to meet whoever preached this when I'm in glory one day. Because, wow, this dude is rowdy. It doesn't come across that way in our translations. But this guy had a lot of edge to him when he preached. And, you know, I'm just a real soft-spoken, chilled-out preacher. And I love meeting guys who... I can't even finish. I'm sorry. I love meeting guys who have a little edge to them when they preach. Who just kind of tell it like it is and say it real plain. And they, you know, I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but that's just real. This, look at what he does here. And if we breeze through this, we'll miss it. Look what he does here. This is so remarkable. So in verse 3, talks about how Jesus is counted as having more, uh, worthy of having more glory than Moses. Because Jesus is the one who built the house. Every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God. Moses was a faithful servant in the house. He was just a servant. Just came to give testimony. But Christ was a 
as was faithful as a son over his house. Now, listen to what he does. You want to talk about like really throwing the hammer down and showing how much greater Jesus is than Moses. Notice how he talks to that crowd of new covenant Christians. Remember, it's not under the old covenant anymore. New covenant Christians. And the writer here, if he's preaching this, is setting up a point he's going to make later about how the new covenant is far superior to the old covenant because the new covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. Watch what he sets up here. This is incredible. He says, but Christ was a faithful uh, a son over his house whose house we are. Moses was just the delivery boy. He was just the servant in the house. But because of the work of Jesus, you, Christian friend, are actually part of the house. Which means you even have a greater place than Moses does. Because you have the glory of living in the fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus. You weren't just looking for it like Moses was. You get to look back and see it and experience the full abundant life that comes from actually living in the new covenant reality of Jesus. You want to talk about how much greater Jesus is than Moses? He took every one of you and made you better than Moses too. Ooh, man. Now, to us, we kind of go, oh, that's kind of cool. To a first century Jewish person or Judaizer, they probably would have had a conniption fit. A coronary would have occurred right in the sanctuary. What? No, you can't say that about Moses. There's no way that I'm better than him. He's the great author of the Old Testament of faith. He's the giver of the law. He's the great prophet. He's the deliverer. Why would you say that about me in comparison to him? They, They would have lost their mind. And this guy right here, mid-stride, not missing a beat. Because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Because of the greatness of His glory. Because of what He has done for you. Because He has invited you into His family. Because He has seated you on thrones. Because He has shared His glory with you. You are now better than Moses. Because Moses was looking for the day. And friends, we are living in the day. Mm. That's incredible. That's incredible. But it gets a little bit better if we finish the sentence. Notice what it says in the rest of verse 6. He says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, key the warning, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope Firm until the end. There's a warning that's about to be given from Psalm 95. And the warning is this. You cannot walk away from the gospel. You cannot walk away from the glorious message of the greatness of Jesus. You cannot exchange the glory of Christ for some other thing and still anticipate participation in his kingdom. He will have none of it. And so Psalm 95 in the Old Testament not attribute it to anyone. You go back and you look and you see there's not an, uh, uh, an attributing line at the top of Psalm 95. 
It comes on the heels of some psalms before it that are viewed as a unit of the beginning of the fourth book of the psalms. Historically, there is pretty good argument to be made that these are psalms of Moses, which is why it's being cited here in Hebrews under a passage about the greatness of Jesus over Moses. But we don't know that for sure. But there's some good cases to be made for it. And so here there's a a citing of Psalm 95, part of it. Notice what it says, this, this warning that's given. If you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. Now remember, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is saying to this group of people, Moses was indeed a faithful servant in the house of God. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. And what was it that he did? He pronounced the need for faith and repentance. Friends, it's such an easy pop quiz. Every great person to be found in the Old Testament was considered great because they all did the exact same great thing. And that was to declare faith and repentance to those who needed it. That's over and over again it happens. Moses, you got to believe and you got to turn from your sin. David, believe and turn from your sin. Noah, believe and turn from your sin. Abraham, believe and turn from your sin. Ezekiel, believe and turn from your sin. Isaiah, believe and turn from your sin. Jeremiah, believe and turn from your sin. Amos, believe and turn from your sin. Even Jonah, who didn't want to, who hated the people he was talking to, at the end of it, do you know why he's considered great? Believe and turn from your sin. He's not considered great because he was a great guy, because he was not. Jonah's considered a great person because he had a great message from a great God. Believe and turn from your sin. And so here's this warning from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear the voice of God, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why not? Compared to whom? Just like those as those who were rebellious in the wilderness. Well, who were they? The ones Moses was preaching to. Remember this first century audience. Has Moses on a pedestal. Man, Moses is great. He's one of the greatest men who's ever lived. He's the great man of our faith. And what this person does, who's trying to drive home the point that Jesus is greater than Moses. He takes an example from Moses' own life. Moses being a faithful servant, preaching faith and repentance to the people, giving them prophecy, giving them the law, giving them the tabernacle, giving them the sacrifices, giving them all of the things that are to their benefit, for their good and for God's glory. And yet... In the very presence of Moses himself with his veil on, having been in the presence of God, seeing the the fire uh, 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 at night and the cloud by day, following them around as they're wandering around the wilderness, seeing the fire of God fall from heaven, seeing the miracles that God wrought during the time of deliverance from Egypt. These people experienced all of these things firsthand. And do you know what they did at the end of it? They did not believe and they did not repent. And so he's taking their hero, Moses, and he's saying, you know what? The people who were with Moses when he did all the great things he did still didn't believe and they still didn't repent. He said, you know what? If you want to have Moses in high regard, great. Just don't act like the people who followed him around. 
Don't harden your heart as they did in the wilderness. Don't do that. Though they saw the works of God. Listen to this. Your fathers tried and tested me. Verse 9. They saw my works for 40 years. Wow. Wow. You know, it's like the guy who sits in church his whole life. Borrowing his faith from his parents or his grandparents. Can cite the scriptures and can lay out the doctrine and can talk about the history of things and can tell you about cool stuff that they've seen happen. There's no real convicting transformation in their own life at all. No longing and desire for the things of the Lord. No real desire for personal transformation and growth in the kingdom. Just sitting back 40 years watching the work of God and it having no impact on their life whatsoever. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun, King Solomon says. It's been like this for a really, really long time. And he said, they had my great works for 40 years. And none of them went into the land of promise. None. So much so that it drove the one leading them to such great frustration that he didn't even get to go into the land of promise. Let's not forget that about Moses. In his anger and in his frustration with the work that God gave him to do among the people that he gave him to do it. He disobeyed God and in the process of disobeying God, he said, listen, you're still my servant. But you're not going to step foot on this land of promise. You're going to die over here in this wilderness with the rest of the disobedient, disgruntled. <laughs> this, this is where you're going to die. And friends, though seeing this work of God, these people would not enter the rest of God due to their discontent and unbelief. Discontent and unbelief are the killer of many a people who would claim to follow Christ. I just don't believe it. And if I do believe it, I'm not really satisfied with it. Moses delivered this warning long ago. And Jesus offers this warning to us still today. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so this morning, we've been asking a tough question. The end of each one of these sermons, we're just going to keep doing it. What figure, what person in the world do I consider to be better than Jesus by the place of prominence I give to him or her? This is what the folks in the first century, when this letter and or sermon was delivered to them, were doing with Moses. They were giving Moses a place of prominence that was greater than Jesus. That's what they were doing. Now, before each one of us dismisses that, well, there's not anybody I give a greater place of prominence to than Jesus. Before we just flippantly dismiss that. 
I want us to ask some tough evaluative questions. Are there people, one, a few, whoever, doesn't matter, that my longing to be connected with them, to know them, to please them, to be like them, to think the way that they think, doesn't matter what, how you want to fill in your connection to that person. Is there any person or group of people in my life that my mental, personal, emotional, physical association with that person constantly and regularly distracts me from the glory of Jesus? If the answer to that is yes, then there is someone in your life that you're giving more prominence to than Jesus. And that can be somebody good. Moses, for hear me, Moses is a good person. He, if you're going to have a hero, he's a hero to have. God used Moses in a remarkable, mighty way. Again, half the planet today, thousands of years later, still knows who Moses is. And there's a good reason for that. Theologically speaking, obviously Moses was depraved, but just... Relationally speaking, Moses is a great guy in history. He did some really remarkable stuff. Really remarkable. Not a bad guy. Listen, the the distinction today that I want to make in the form of a compound statement is this. It's okay to have heroes. It's not okay to have idols. That's what we're getting to. Folks in the first century, Moses was their idol. He had stopped being a hero and he'd become an idol. Who is your idol? And friends, if we're not careful, it can run dangerously close to home. It could be your spouse. Or your kids. Or from the kid's perspective, your parent or grandparent. It could be a political figure. It could be somebody in the entertainment world. It could be somebody in the sports world. It could be a religious teacher. Like it was for these folks in the first century. Moses was their idol. Great religious teacher that he was. And received a place of prominence over Jesus himself in their lives. Friends, here's the thing. Jesus is better than any other person that we have connection with in our lives. He's better than your spouse. He's better than your boss. He's better than your kids. He's better than your favorite political analyst. He's better than your favorite entertainment person, your favorite sports figure, your favorite religious leader, your favorite teacher, the favorite person you like to read from history. Jesus is better than. And we run a very dangerous risk in our lives of lifting other people too far up off of the ground 
And placing them in a position where they rival the glory of Jesus. We view people often as taking pedestal positions like in receiving a medal. Friends, that is not how it works when we're talking about Jesus. When we consider Jesus, we should not view things as a pedestal. Oh, well, Jesus has got the gold medal spot, so it's okay. No, Jesus has a throne and he's seated on it as king. And there's not another throne around him for these other people to be sitting on. They're in the crowd with us as servants of the house or members of the house being built. There's just one space for Jesus. He graciously invites us to come and sit on that throne with him, which is a remarkable gift of salvation, but not because we belong there. Nor should we put anybody else there. Only Jesus. And so we need to ask the really hard question this morning. What figure in the world do I consider to be better than Jesus solely by the place of prominence that I give to him or to her? And if you're taking the fast, I don't encourage you to do this today, but a great way to test this if you are regularly on social media or when you get back to being on social media is to go back about six months And scan through your own feed. And see who you quote and reference and link to the most. It's usually a pretty telling indicator of what's on your mind. Where your heart is. Where your associations lie. And it can be a pretty telling reality of am I giving a certain person or persons massively more prominent place in my life than I'm giving to Jesus? Because friends, the thing that you dwell on the most is where your heart is. And if we could just all be really vulnerable and honest for a minute, Where we spend most of our emotional, mental capital, if we're just honest, if we could just be brutally honest, more times than not, it's not with Jesus. It's just not. And we turn our attention to some other good thing. Again, this is not necessarily bad. Moses isn't bad. He was divinely inspired by God to write the first five books of the Old Testament and several Psalms. He's not bad. But we tend to turn our attention to even those things that are good and make idols out of them. And we don't do it with intent, but we step out into this world and we hone our attention in on someone or something. And we basically take with the other hand, Jesus, and we kind of do this. Just, just wait back here, Jesus. I need to spend some time with this right now. And friends, that's not okay. It is not okay to replace Jesus in our lives with anything else 
even if that other thing is very good. Because as good as it is, it's not better than Jesus. Jesus is better than. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus is better than. Thank you, Father, that he's better than Moses. One of the greatest people in the redemptive story. Someone that should be a spiritual hero to us. Someone that your word calls the prophet and the lawgiver and the deliverer. That your word calls a faithful servant. But Father, he's not better than Jesus. And nor are any of the other people that we in our lives place in a high regard to the detriment of our love for Christ. Father, forgive us for that. Cause the Lord Jesus Christ to hold the supreme and best place in our hearts and minds all the time without waver. Father, our foolish hearts will chase after every good thing. Often to the detriment of chasing after the greatest thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, by your grace and for your glory, instill in us the truth that Jesus is better than. And we thank you in advance for the work that you will do in our lives because of it. In Christ's name, amen.